0: This week, the Nationals take on the Bryce Harper-led Philadelphia Phillies. And Walters is a great spot to meet before and after the games. Walters also is showing Olympic coverage all day and night. And this Saturday night, UFC 265 with Jose Aldo taking on Pedro Munoz and main event Derek Lewis versus undefeated Cyril Gon.
1: Make your reservations for this week's events now at waltersdc.com slash reservation.
2: Just go to Indeed.com slash Blue Wire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Blue Wire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
3: Pitch to Terrace, hit in the air to deep left center field. This one is way back. Hernandez looking up, and it's gone into the brew house red seats about four rows in the light hitting ronald tiraeus with his fifth homer of the year and it has come undone for corbin after six terrific innings here in the seventh it's four nothing philadelphia alvarado ready and the kick in the two two to Adams, swing and a miss struck him out and the ball game is over and this time it's a one two three inning for the always interesting jose alvarado he gets the save tonight For the Phillies, his fourth of the year, who hold on and win by a run tonight.
0: And welcome to Nats Chat for Wednesday, August 4th, 2021, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, if you are a regular listener of the Nats Chat podcast, you know that both Mark and myself are big-time Seinfeld fans. I'm assuming many of you listening are slash were big-time Seinfeld fans. One of the many classic conversations on the show featured Jerry, Kramer, and Newman in a car, and the conversation involved the day Tuesday, and the classic line of Tuesday has no feel was uttered. Well, this game on Tuesday night had no feel, and uh, it may be the first of many games that have no feel for the Nationals over the course of the final two months of the season. A 5-4 loss to the Philadelphia Phillies at Nationals Park on Tuesday night in Game 2 of a four-game series. I don't know, Mark, did this game have a feel? It didn't feel like it felt uh, like anything to me on Tuesday night.
1: No, it felt like a Tuesday, Al, and just hope that at the end of the night I don't leave uh, some used dental tape on your dashboard. (laughs) Uh, That's the kind of game it was. Look, there are going to be games like this. I think we know that the rest of the way where... Monday night was exciting. You've got Josiah Gray making his debut. You know, a lot of reason to care about a win or lose and, and know that that meant a lot for the future. And then there's going to be games like this where Patrick Corbin is pitching and we've kind of seen what we need to see from Patrick Corbin. And this was a very Patrick Corbin-like start. Four runs in seven innings. There are parts of it that looked really good, but he ultimately gave up three home runs and that cost them. And then Zach Wheeler was really good until the Nats kind of got something going late. They made it interesting. They're not getting blown out at all. In these games, they're right in there every time in the ninth inning. And so you give them credit for that, but not a lot of juice to this one. And, you know, unfortunately there are going to be more of these the rest of the way, given the state that they're in now.
0: So with Corbin's outing on Tuesday night, man, you talk about Jekyll and Hyde. I mean, it could not have started out any worse, literally. The first pitch of the game is deposited for a home run. A first pitch leadoff homer by Gene Segura off Corbin.
3: Here's a swing and a line drive down the left field line, hooking toward the corner, and this one is gone. Goodbye. Gene Segura has hit a home run of the first pitch of the game from Patrick Corbin.
0: Then he's lights out. He retires 11 consecutive batters as part of a stretch of six scoreless innings. And then he unravels in the top of the seventh, gives up three runs, begins the inning by allowing three consecutive Phillies to reach base, leadoff homer by JT Realmuto, five-pitch walk-drawn by Alec Bohm, and then a first-pitch two-run homer by Ronald Torres. So the final line ends up being four runs in seven innings. You know, he had eight strikeouts versus one walk. That's good. He only gave up six hits. That's good. He threw 66 of 93 pitches for strikes. That's good. But he gave up three more homers. And, you know, in addition to Corbin having a bad ERA and bad whip on the season, he's also now allowing a career-worst 1.94 home runs per nine innings on the season. There are many things you can identify in terms of why Patrick has struggled this year. But that stands out maybe as much as anything. He's given up a lot of homers on the season.
1: He has. And the thing that struck me about this one is that his slider was really good all night. The the best slider he's had all year. He got 13 swings and misses on the slider. But what did the home runs come on? Fastball, curveball, 63 mile an hour curveball, another fastball. And I think, especially in the seventh inning, there was maybe a little bit of feeling from Davey Martinez of, hey, your slider's been really good. Where was that in that last inning? If that's your best pitch, your out pitch, you need to go with that when it really matters, and it didn't happen here, and he got burned on his second and third best pitches. But you talk about the home run numbers. This is now a two-year trend. Over the last two seasons, he's now made 32 starts. So that's essentially one full season. The ERA is up well north of five. The whip is over 1.5. But he's given up 35 homers now in 181 innings. That would probably lead the league if that was one full season or close to it. That's not good. That is getting burned, and that's telling you that, The stuff is still such that if he leaves it over the plate, it's very hittable. So that's where the slider comes in. The slider looks like a strike, but doesn't end up in the strike zone. He was really good with that tonight, but he got burned on his fastball. And that's something he's going to have to figure out because it's not good enough just to look good (laughs) and feel like you you pitched well. You got to have results here at some point. Four runs in seven innings is not the results you want.
0: Yeah. We've gotten to a point with Corbin to where we grade on a curve, and we shouldn't do that. He's not paid to be graded on a curve. Six-year, $140 million contract, he's paid to go out there and be maybe not an ace, but like a good number two, certainly a really good number three. He has not been that since 2019. Yeah, Corbin, as we're taping this podcast, is tied for third in the majors in terms of most home runs given up this season, 25 home runs allowed by Patrick on the year. And you know, of the many things we're eyeing over the course of this season, the remainder of it, I think one of them is, does Corbin give you any reason for optimism moving forward here? Like, again, it's still very hard to accept, I think, if you're a Nationals fan, that this is just who this guy is right now. Like, to me, it's still, okay, 2019 wasn't that long ago. That guy still must exist in some form. Can we see that over the remainder of this season? And, you know, I mean, we see glimpses. We saw glimpses on Tuesday night, but Ultimately, it's not good enough. Four runs in seven innings is not good enough. And, you know, if that's Josiah Gray or Eric Fetty, we're maybe having a different conversation. But he's supposed to be better than that. And he hasn't been better than that going on two years now.
1: Yeah. And look, at this point, they kind of need him to lead the way. We sort of jokingly talked about it last night. Who's their opening day starter in 2022? Well, if Strasburg isn't ready to come back and if they don't go sign somebody else big and they're not going to give it to one of the kids, I think it may just be Patrick Corbin by default because of uh, the track record and and the seniority and all that stuff. So he needs to lead by example right now. And yes, there were good things in this start, and there's some things that maybe he can build off of. But you've got to be better than that. You've got to finish strong, especially. And I know I got some questions from people asking why they left him in for the seventh inning. I mean, he gets through the sixth on 75 pitches. He's given up one run on three hits and no walks at that point. You don't pull him from that game. You know, especially the bullpen, as bad as it's been, as burned up as it's been. No, Patrick Corbin needs to be able to give you one more inning at that point and keep the game close. And he turned a one-nothing deficit into a four-run deficit in the span of three batters. So, you know, he's getting burned in bunches like that. His last start in Philly was, what, three homers in a span of four batters. So you've got to eliminate those big mistakes like that. And at this point, we're not even talking about him being like an elite, top-notch pitcher. He needs to be just an average pitcher, (laughs) That can give you six or seven innings and give you a chance. And too many times this year and last year, that's just not been the case.
0: No. And, and it stands out, of course, because of what has happened with Steven Strasburg. By the way, hashtag Paolo for opening day 2022. Someone actually tweeted that within the last 24 hours. <laughs> our guy, the Rally Mullet, is on that.
1: Oh, he's our biggest fan. Yeah. Rally mullet is our biggest fan.
0: He is, he is. So we'll get that campaign going. <music>
2: Just go to indeed.com slash blue wire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about indeed on this podcast. That's indeed.com slash blue wire terms and conditions apply. Need to hire you need indeed.
1: I just want Swear to go down and kind of, uh, regather himself a little bit, take a load off his mind. Uh, he'll go down there and, and uh, you know, um, he won't pitch obviously today or tomorrow. Um, And then he'll get back on the mound and start pitching, but just kind of get some confidence back and not put so much pressure on him.
0: All right. With the bullpen. So very interesting roster maneuvering by the Nationals on Tuesday. Wander Suero optioned to AAA Rochester. I think Mike Rizzo and Davey Martinez are regular listeners to the Nats Chat podcast because we had a Wander Suero conversation in our last episode of the back-to-back debaculous outings for Wander Suero Sunday afternoon and then Monday night. And he actually got demoted to AAA Rochester on Monday. Nat's selecting the contract of our old pal Javi Guerra from AAA Rochester. We saw Javi Guerra on display on Tuesday night. But what'd you make of that? You know, it's been interesting, Mark. We've had sort of like back-to-back surprising roster moves by the Nats in recent days regarding the bullpen, the optioning of Tanner Rainey to AAA Rochester, now the optioning of Wander Suero to AAA Rochester.
1: And they're both kind of similar moves. That's the way Davey talked about it. And I think there's sort of a similar purpose here. This is not evidence that they've given up on the two. This is evidence that they know they're ultimately going to need these two, but they're not right right now. And they need them to get right. And the way to do that is put them in a low pressure situation in Rochester and let them work on specific things. And really in both guys' case, that is strong strike one, getting ahead in the count. They really get into trouble when they fall behind in the count. So I think in Suero's case, they just didn't want to put him in the spot where they keep calling on him in big league games, and he's feeling the pressure. And as we've said, with Suero, he's either got it or he doesn't. And if he doesn't have it in the first batter, you can tell, and he doesn't have the ability to get out of it. And so that is something I think they really wanted to work on, is that even on the nights when you don't feel like you have your best stuff, you got to find a way to get through that. It starts with his cutter, which is his bread and butter pitch, but it also has to be his, his other stuff, his curveball his changeup to at least trust that enough to be able to turn to that if the cutter isn't going where you want it to go. So, I mean, the numbers on Swero are striking. On June 24th, he had a 295 ERA, and now in 13 outings since, he's given up 21 runs, and the ERA is 629. So, I mean, what we've seen the last couple nights, it was obvious something needs to change here. And if the idea is just keep putting him out there, that's not accomplishing anything. So they send him down there, want him to work on things. He's going to be back. Rainey's going to be back too. This is not a, you know, season ending demotion, anything like that. They're going to call them back up, but they need them to work on things. They need them to be better so that when they do come back, it doesn't quite feel like a still feeling their way through and trying to figure things out. They need them to be in a better form when they get back.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it says something that, Right now, at the major league level, you're kind of in a portion of a season here in which you're having guys work through stuff and develop. And even with these two, they're like, no, you're not doing that here. <laughs> they're like, no, you're doing that in the minors because that's where you're at here right now. You're struggling to that degree to where we're not going to let you work through your stuff at the major league level, even though we're letting other guys work through their stuff at the major league level right now. Well, Guerra and Ryan Harper end up being the Nationals' relievers utilized on Tuesday Nigera gives up a run in the top of the eighth on a one-out solo homer by our pal Bryce Harper to left center field on a one-two pitch. The homer with some shot going a projected 430 feet for Statcast, stat cast and a little bit of showmanship from old Brycey off uh, crossing home plate. He blows a kiss to the Nats fans at Nationals Park and gives the double I love you hand sign.
3: Bryce Harper with his 17th home run of the year. Gives the Phillies a three-run lead. It is their fourth home run of the night.
0: I got a kick out of that. I'm fine with stuff like that. I think it's a good back and forth. The Nats, to me, still don't have a true rival. So if, in fact, the Phillies end up ultimately becoming like the Nats' ultimate rival and Harper's a part of that, I think that's good. So I like that. Good for Bryce. Look, he crushed that pitch. So he's got every right to celebrate however he wants. And then Ryan Harper was on display. A perfect top of the ninth inning. Uh, you know, a fairly low-leverage spot. Although the game became interesting because of the Josh Bell home run, so it's not entirely garbage time or anything like that. But Ryan Harper now has an ERA sub one on the season, zero nine five on the season. Remember that the next time that Davey goes to someone other than Ryan Harper in a big spot here. Ryan Harper has done a good job, albeit in low-leverage spots for the most part. But uh, that's impressive what he's done now this year: zero nine five ERA.
1: So we've talked about him a lot. I get questions every night from fans about him. Why isn't he pitching in bigger spots? I asked someone with the team off the record about this and said, hey, you know what's the deal there? Because there's clearly a reason that they don't use him. And the feeling among the organization is just that he does not have the stuff to get big-time hitters out in big spots. His go-to pitch is a curveball. And it's an effective curveball, but his fastball really isn't that great. And I think they feel... That if he's trying to get say Bryce Harper, JTL, Real Muto out with it, it's not going to work. That uh, he has other stuff for that. So they're, they've tried to find spots from they think are better, like the bottom of the lineup, obviously lower leverage spots where the game's a little more out of hand. So that's fine. I get all that. I don't think anybody's trying to claim that Ryan Harper is the future of the organization. But we've reached a point now where they've tried everybody else. You've tried the best. Let's try the rest now. <laughs> Where's the harm in that? So you saw it, you know, semi legitimate situation down to run in the ninth inning, and he got three quick outs, so maybe there'll be more of that to come. I don't know. We'll see, but that was at least a good sign for him. And just to Bryce real quick, from having covered him all his years here, he loves playing the villain. He embraces that role. Remember in Atlanta, when they would get on him and he did the mess up the A logo behind the batter's box? Fans got all of them, No, respect the A.
3: A little situation developed in last night's game, not a big one, but a little one. Uh, this is before the game tonight when the, the grounds crew here takes great care to set up the Braves' A logo behind home plate. Bryce Harper, last night, evidently unhappy with how much he was getting booed here in Atlanta, did this three times. Just kind of casually swiped his cleat across the A. Those are two separate at bats. He did it in his third at bat as well. Of course, some fans saw that. Of course, that only
1: intensified the booing. He loved that stuff. He loved to play the villain, and he is villain number one now in Washington. Now we can debate whether or not he should be, whether he deserves to continue to be booed the way that he is by Nationals fans, especially after they won the World Series. But he is no problem with it. I think he lives off that stuff. You know, Reggie Jackson is one of his favorite all-time players. Reggie loved that too. There's a lot of similarities there. So Bryce doesn't have any problem with that. And Maybe that will continue to be a thing. Hopefully, one of these years, the Nats and the Phillies are both in the race together. And there's some really meaningful games down the stretch where he's coming here.
0: Yeah. For those people who are familiar with professional wrestling, Bryce Harper is a great heel in Washington, D.C. He played that role to a T. And like all great heels, he was good in his performance. And that home run, I mean, you do that, you can act however you want within reason. And he did that on Tuesday night. So I got no problem with that. Well, with the Nationals' offense on Tuesday night, like the game, you know, it was just kind of meh. It was just kind of there. The Nats, they weren't terrible offensively. Zach Wheeler, who's had a good season, did give up four runs in seven and a third innings. Nats had eight hits, although seven of the eight hits were singles. Uh, Andrew Stevenson, not Victor Robles, was the starting center fielder, and number one batter. Stevenson 0 for 4 with two strikeouts. We again saw Luis Garcia at shortstop. Boy, we're seeing a lot of that here. Uh, very little of Luis over these last few games at second base. He's become almost like the every game shortstop here. I, I don't know if that's going to continue or not, but Garcia 0 for 4 with a couple of strikeouts, left five men on base. Juan Soto is in kind of a, a funk, you know, by his standards. Uh, he had a single, but nothing more in this game. The big bright spot was another mammoth homer by Josh Bell. Josh Bell, a two-run homer with one out, going to the second deck in center field in the bottom of the eighth inning.
3: A long home run for Josh Bell. Disappears into the first
0: row of section 243. just to the right of dead center. The home run chasing Zach Wheeler from the game. The home run cutting the Nats deficit to five We talked about Bell. He does not hit wall scrapers. Uh, this was not a wall scraper. The homer going a projected 442 feet per stat cast. Harper's homer was a bomb. Bell's homer was an even bigger bomb on Tuesday night.
1: You don't see very many homers reach that point. It's like right at that corner of where the second deck, is, as far as it gets, not quite straightaway field, but as close as you can get to it. That is a poke. And like you said, Bell doesn't get cheated. You know, when he gets a hold of one, he hits it a long way. He's not just scraping them uh, over the fence. I got to say, though, Al, four innings into this game, I was legitimately worried that Zach Glear was going to throw a no-hitter. Yeah. Both because of the stuff and because of the lineup that he was facing. Once he got through Soto and Bell the second time, and you don't know how many more times they're going to come up, my antennas were up a little bit and thinking, oh, boy, do I need to start getting ready to write that story? The Nationals, knock on wood, have never been no-hit since they've come to town. They came close. Michael Walker got two outs in the ninth in St. Louis late in the 2013 season, and Ryan Zimmerman broke it up with an infield single, hustled down the line, and just beat the throw.
3: Zimmerman, ground ball. Walker can't make the play. Cosmo bare hands. The tag. No. And Zimmerman beats it out.
1: That's the only time they came close to being no hit. I was a little bit worried that might happen in this one. The offense came late. Now, it was good that came late, but Joe Girardi had no choice the way his bullpen has been and how much they've been used. He had to keep Wheeler out there as long as he could, and it almost cost him. You know, he winds up giving up four runs on a night when he looked great early on. And then, after all that, Wheeler ends up giving up the same number of runs as Patrick Corbin. He had more hits than Patrick Corbin, and he struck out fewer batters than Patrick Corbin. So who had the better start? Wheeler. (laughs) But... (laughs) You could say that Corbin actually looked better at times.
0: Yeah, and Corbin had the eight strikeouts versus the one walk. So, I mean, he had that going for him. I don't think there's a Nats fan on the planet, though, who wouldn't prefer to have Zach Wheeler right now (laughs) as, as opposed to Patrick Corbin. Wheeler's an interesting guy because for years he was, like, good but not great with the Mets. When he went into free agency after the 2019 season, there was a feeling of this guy's peripherals are such that he's better than what we've seen in terms of, like, the outcome stats. And sure enough, he's had two good seasons now with the Phillies. Last season, he was good, and he's been even better so far this year. Like, he's taken his game to another level with the Phillies. This is one of those $100 million free agent contracts, and it's in the low 100s. It's not like he got some mega money deal, but it's working out so far. Wheeler's doing a good job uh, with the Phillies and at least started off well on Tuesday night. But then that's, you know, eventually uh, did get to him to at least some extent. Yadiel Hernandez had another multi hit game, two for three with the walk. He had a couple of singles. Adrian Sanchez had a multi hit game couple of singles. Interesting seeing Sanchez in that number two spot in the lineup over these last few games. I know Ossidi's Escobar is out, but uh, I don't know. Any surprise that we have seen Sanchez batting second these last few games?
1: I mean, look at what the options are, basically. The alternative is to have Soto second and Bell third. And maybe that is the way to go, but they just don't have lineup depth anymore. and And I think that is a placeholder. Escobar, Was still dealing with the wrist from getting hit by pitch the other day. He was able to take BP on Tuesday. It sounds like he's going to be good to go here soon. And so if he's back in the lineup on Wednesday, I'm guessing he'll be hitting second or first. And probably at shortstop as well. I think we may see Garcia move to to second base at that point. I think that's the only reason that he's been a shortstop here the last few days.
0: All right. One more item. And then I want to get to a very interesting item that was out there on Tuesday regarding the Nats. So we had activity for the Nats at catcher on Tuesday. The Nats put Rene Rivera on the 10-day injured list, retroactive to August 2nd with a right elbow contusion. I don't know that any team ever has put more catchers on an injured list or a COVID list in a season than the Nationals have so far this year. But the corresponding roster move is the Nats recalling Riley Adams from A Rochester. Riley Adams is the guy who the Nats got from the Toronto Blue Jays on Thursday in the trade of Brad Hand. Adams was the Nats' number 13 prospect per MLB pipeline as of Tuesday. And Adams ended up making his Nats debut on Tuesday night. He pinch hit, uh, struck out on five pitches for the final out of the game. But I guess a couple of things. Number one, this is so rare that a team engages in a sell-off the way the Nats did. And now three guys from the sell-off are already with the major league club in Josiah Gray. Mason Thompson and Riley Adams, but also the Nats could have called up Kiber Ruiz did not do that. He's playing for AAA Rochester. What was the thought process behind going with Adams and not Ruiz?
1: So the thought was, is they would like Ruiz to start catching every day. And at the moment up here, I think they want to see some more of Trace Pereira. And here's a chance to see Adams as well and kind of split the job between them for a little while. If everything goes according to plan, next year Ruiz is probably their number one catcher and then one of those other guys is their number two so here's a chance to see both of them get a sense maybe start to figure out who has the upper hand for that one so I think that's what it is we're gonna see Ruiz at some point here and by the way in his debut for Rochester he homered
2: Killamay's pitch blasted to right a deep line drive over the head of Khalil Lee and it's gone Caber Ruiz homers on a line into the home bullpen in right
3: welcome to Rochester Caber Three nothing Red Wings.
1: All the reports are very impressive on him. I saw the video, of the home run. He, he's a big kid, and it was an impressive swing that he put on it. So we're going to see him, but I think they want to get him into a little bit of routine catching every day or close to every day now at Triple A, and then they'll call him up. And then, you know, Adams is a guy. He's a big guy too, 6'4", 246 as a catcher. That's like bigger than Matt Wieters, who was, who was a big catcher himself. And he talked about. We talked to him before the game. That a lot of people have always questioned whether he can stick at that position because of his size, and he believes that he can, and he works really hard to stay in shape and not let the body wear down on him, and he prides himself on his actual defensive abilities, although he is known for being a power hitter. He was the Blue Jays' top power hitting prospect. So, you know, we only got to see one at bat against Jose Alvarado. I wouldn't wish that upon anybody The guy throws 100 and has no clue where it's going to go. So he's going to start a game here, Adams, in the next day or two. I'll be interested to see how he looks for that. But, you know, long way to go. But for the first time in a long time, there are some young catching talent in the organization and some actual, like, compelling decisions for them to make. All these years that they've been stuck with veterans and they've done well, but they've never developed anybody on their own. Well, all of a sudden, you could have Ruiz, Barrera, and Adams and take your pick two out of the three. That's a nice position to be in if it all pans out.
0: In a period of a month, the Nats organization has gone from having like no hope at catcher to actually having a future, it feels like. It's, it's amazing how that's turned around, at least in theory. Like you said, we'll see what these guys end up being.
3: Tickets
2: for the remainder of the 2021 Fredericksburg National season are on sale now. They have promotions for every night of the week, like $2 Tuesdays, Thirsty Thursdays, Firework Fridays, and Giveaway Sundays. If you can't make it to the game in person, you can listen to a free online radio broadcast on the Fred Nats Baseball Network or watch a live video stream with a subscription to MILB.TV. Stop by the box office or visit FredNats.com for ticket information and see the future stars of the Washington Nationals today.
3: (music)
0: All right. You can always email us, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. I want to read this email and then tag team it with something that was tweeted on Tuesday morning. So Charlie Lynch emailed us, subject long-term extensions. He writes, so while I understand fans not being happy with the idea of Trey being traded due to perhaps not wanting to give him big money in an extension, here would be my question. Name the players who have signed long-term deals in the last few years that the teams would not do over again if given the chance. I wrote this after seeing Mookie Betts play second for the Dodgers due to not wanting to strain his hip again. Red Sox got ripped for letting him go, but look at them now. And it's not the money, but the lengths of these deals. Seven to 10 years for Trey, you cannot do. Four to five, different story. Now, having said all that, I'd give Juan Soto 10 years tomorrow. I think he's a generational player. Exception to the rule. Thanks for reading. Well, thank you for writing, Charlie. And so we can combine that with what MLB insider John Heyman tweeted on Tuesday morning, quote, The Nats' last offer to Trey Turner was six years, about $100 million in March 2020. Nats' people suggested publicly and privately they planned to make another offer last spring, but ultimately didn't do so. I've got a lot of thoughts on this, but you have been on the Trey Turner saga. You've done a lot of reporting on it. What can you tell us about what Heyman tweeted, and what do you make of what Heyman tweeted?
1: So I heard some similar things in the last few days from people who would be in the know about how this works. And I kind of made reference to it in an article I wrote the other day about the Nats and long-term deals and how, you know, they really haven't, other than Ryan Zimmerman and Steven Strasburg, locked any of their own guys up to deals like that. And it sort of seems to follow the same pattern always, although in this case, for the first time, they traded them before letting them get to free agency. So what I was told by, again, you know, people who, uh, are aware of what the discussions have been was that they did initially make him an offer in spring of 20 and it was you know on the lower end now remember he has not had his big big season at that point he was good coming off the strong 19 in which he was hurt for the first part of it but not the full breakthrough you know like 30 30 kind of season that he started to put together mvp votes kind of season that he started to put together you know it was an initial offer i'm not sure anybody really expected him to take it the feeling was they're going to revisit this at some point now you had COVID, you had that whole season kind of turned strange, and the odds of them revisiting that last year were pretty slim. But here's where there's some disagreement on the two sides. Going into this spring, what I was told is that Trey Turner and his people were kind of expecting another offer to come, and they let it be known that they were interested in at least having some discussions. And what Mike Rizzo said on trade deadline day was that Trey and his people had already made it known that they wanted to see what the rest of the shortstop market would be. And therefore, they tabled all those discussions that he sort of put it on Trey and his side for not reinitiating re-in- discussions. So where's the truth? Look, it's probably somewhere in between. We're getting both sides of the story here. The truth, you know, both sides are going to say what they think benefits them. The truth is probably somewhere in between. But I think the larger point here is that we've kind of come to realize that the Nats, are going to usually make an offer for these guys, an initial offer, but one that they don't expect to be taken. And that ultimately, while they may make a more competitive offer, they've sort of resigned themselves to losing these guys in free agency. And other than Zimmerman and Strasburg, they have not been able to re-sign any of their stars. And here's the thing. I don't know that that's necessarily been a mistake in the end. You know, as upset as people get each time that somebody leaves, whether it's Bryce Harper, Anthony Rendon, now Trey Turner in a trade, look ultimately at how these things work out. And more often than not, they don't. So as our emailer, Charlie, was saying, very few of those contracts work out. The Max Scherzer contract was great, but that's the exception to the rule. Right now, do the Nats wish they had signed Steven Strasburg for 245? Probably not. Do they wish they'd signed Anthony Rendon for 245? I don't know. He has not taken off yet. There's a long way to go, but he's been hurt. He hasn't been as productive. So it's a fascinating topic, and I don't know what the right answer to this is, but I'll just say that it definitely seems like they did not believe that they were ever going to get a deal done with Trey Turner. And that is in part why they went ahead and made the move when they did it.
0: Yeah. So I think, like you said, we don't know the exact particulars, right? You're going off what you're being told and what you're being told years after the fact at this point. But what I think is pretty clear is The Nats weren't that interested in signing Trey Turner to a long-term extension. Six years, $100 million, even in March 2020, was never going to get a deal done. The Nats knew that. They make that offer to impart safe face. That reminds me of some of the offers the Nats made to Ian Desmond before his career cratered. I remember those offers. Those were not offers anyone expected Desmond to take. That reminds me of the offer the Nats made to Bryce Harper. Everyone knew Harper and Boris were not going to accept that offer. You make an offer like that to save face. You make it to say, hey, we tried. Yeah, okay, fine. But you didn't really want to get the deal done. That the Nats, if it's true that they didn't make a single other offer after March 2020, that's nuts. Like, if you really want to sign the guy, you would have made another offer. This whole thing of we were waiting for them to re engage us, that's not how it works. Like, if you really want the guy, you act aggressively and you say, hey, here's what we're offering you, especially with everyone knowing. That the shortstop market was about to be reset by Francisco Lindor. The Lindor extension with the Mets didn't come out of nowhere. People knew that there was a good chance that that was going to happen. Then that happens right as the season is beginning 10 years, $341 million. And, you know, everything gets turned upside down by that. So I don't think the Nets wanted to sign Trey Turner to a long term extension. And as you said, as I have said, I don't think that's the wrong way to approach this. I think this reaction that people have of, oh, you know, cheap learners, they won't sign any of their own guys to long-term deals. No, there are baseball reasons not to sign guys to these long-term contracts. And it is exactly what we've discussed. These contracts rarely work. Like for every one Max Scherzer free agent contract, there are like five to 10 Albert Pujols free agent contracts. Even with these extensions, you know, like the Mike Trout extension right now looks good. But what about something like the Felix Hernandez extension? What about something like the Miguel Cabrera extension? Like all these other extensions end up blowing up in your face. And while every story has its own story, the kind of common denominator with all these things is you pay a guy big money in his 30s for what he did in his 20s. And what is impossible to ignore is that the first free agent season for Trey Turner, the 2023 season, is going to be his age 30 season. He's going into his 30s. So, are you really going to want to pay that guy 250, 300 million dollars, knowing the history of these deals? And to this idea of the Nats having not signed more of their homegrown guys to long-term extensions, and you just hit on it, and I think it's so true. Name me the guy who the Nats should have extended but didn't. I mean, it, it, does anyone listening wish the Nats had extended Jordan Zimmerman? Do people understand how horrible Jordan Zimmerman ended up being with the Detroit Tigers? Great guy. I mean, no one's knocking him. But Jordan Zimmerman over five years with Detroit had an ERA of 563. Those seasons for Zimmerman with Detroit, his age 30 through age 34 seasons, exactly what we're looking at with Trey Turner. Ian Desmond, Desmond's four seasons away from the Nats, 2016 through 2019, his age 30 through 33 seasons. Again, exactly what we're talking about here with Trey Turner. His total war over those four seasons, minus 0.3. Her baseball reference. He was a sub-replacement level player, Desmond was, over his four seasons away from the Nats. We know about the Strasburg situation. And I tell you what, even with Ryan Zimmerman, and everyone loves Ryan Zimmerman, go back and look at his extension. February 2012, six-year, $100 million extension. The life of that extension, 2014 through 2019. Again, almost exactly like what we're talking about with Trey, age 29 through age 34 seasons. Zimmerman, over those six years, played in more than 115 games in a regular season one time. More than 115 games. That's it. One time. And his total war over those six seasons, 5.2 for baseball reference. Over six years, that was the war. And, you know, war's not gospel. It's just kind of like a one-stop shop we can use in this discussion. So, you know, we will criticize the learners if criticism is warranted. I don't think it's warranted in this situation, and I, I just think like if you look at the facts in the history, I don't know how you can be that bent out of shape over the Nats pretty clearly deciding it wasn't worth it to pay Trey Turner the big money that was going to be required to lock up Trey
1: Turner. So here's the thing that I think a lot of people look at, and I think it's easy for us to look at this as well and say, why aren't they signing guys earlier? Like lock them up when they're only in year three, and you see some teams have been able to do that sort of thing, but it, it doesn't happen as much as it used to. And I think this is because the players and their agents are getting a lot smarter. The smart extension is not to wait until he's about to become a free agent and now sign him for six, seven, eight years while he's in his 30s. The smart one is to get him in year three or four, buy out his arbitration years and a few free agent years, and then have him hit the market again at 32, 33 And that used to be the case. You usually see a lot more of those. And what's happened now is I think the players and their agents have realized, especially in a post-steroids era, the last thing you want to do is hit free agency at 32, 33. You could be done at that point. You get one shot at it after your sixth year. And for most guys that ends up being around age 29 or 30 and you hit it big and you get as much as you can then. And teams have gotten smarter about that as well and are saying, well, hang on. That's not a smart investment to pay a guy that much money On a contract that's going to have him locked up until he's 35, 36, 37. So I think we're coming to a head here. And I think the new CBA is going to be fascinating how they attempt to restructure this. I think there's an understanding that we've gotten past the point where just because you're older and have been around longer, you should be paid the most then. I think there's an understanding that you should be paid more in your prime, which is 25 to 30, not 30 to 35. It's going to be complicated to work that all out. But I think that's the next wave, and that's what they have to try to figure out because teams are going to be willing to spend big bucks on guys at those younger ages. They're not going to be willing to do it in their 30s, and that's why, to get all the way back to Charlie's email, I do agree that Soto is a different case because he's only going to be 25, 26 when he hits free agency on top of being a generational talent. He is the guy that you could say if you lock up, you're still going to get his prime years.
0: Yeah, the deals to do are the Tatis like extensions, signing guys up, early 20s, buyout arbitration years and free agency years. But I think what's also interesting, too, is free agency isn't the end of the rainbow that it used to be. And to me, a real turning point for all this was that 2018-2019 offseason, the Bryce Harper, Manny Machado free agency class. That was supposed to be the free agency class to end all free agency classes. And it ended up being, in a lot of ways, embarrassing for Harper and Machado. They lingered for months. Their free agencies were not nearly the sweepstakes that people thought. I mean, I remember the winter meetings that year were in Vegas, and everyone was like, wow, Bryce Harper's from Vegas. This is going to be such a big deal. It wasn't a big deal. Harper got humbled big time in free agency. So did Machado. The amount of teams that ended up being in truly on each guy were so small, like it was like, I don't know, two, three, four teams at most. Harper, the contract he ended up agreeing on with the Phillies does not allow for an opt-out. It was almost like Bryce never wanted to go through that again because it was like such a humbling experience, how few teams were truly interested in giving him what he and Boris wanted. So yeah, I mean, teams have smartened up to this. I think they're right to do that. And I think to your point, the next CBA, from a player's perspective, should have fewer years of team control for clubs. But obviously, the clubs aren't going to want to do that. So we'll see how that gets negotiated. But the game has changed. And by the game, I mean the free agency game, the contract game, you know, the days of teams being swindled by players on these deals. Those days are coming to an end. I know people love to cry about collusion. It's not collusion. It's teams are smarter now about this stuff. The track record scream to you what you should and shouldn't do here. And signing guys to these huge deals just doesn't work out with any kind of regularity.
1: Yeah, I was about to say the exact same thing. I'm glad you made the point because the players counter argument to all this is, oh, the teams have decided they're not going to spend money. They're just trying to save money and they're colluding with each other. Look, I think there is a little bit of You know, there are five or six franchises out there that have decided they're just not going to spend money no matter what, and they're going to cry poor. We know who those franchises are. But the rest of them, especially as you see front offices get smarter and look at analytics and really understand where the value is in spending money on players, they have come to a point that they realize it's a bad investment in most cases, not in every single case, but in most cases, it's a bad investment to give guys that much money in that many years in free agency as they get older. And so that's not collusion, that's teams being smarter. So the players have to understand that. There's so much distrust between the two sides, and this kind of goes at the core of it. The players don't think enough teams are trying to win, and the teams think the players are greedy and are asking for ridiculous demands that they frankly don't deserve, and that it's gonna hurt the teams financially down the road. So I don't know how this all ends up, but the system's gotta change. The current system, as we've seen in this modern world, especially post-steroids, it doesn't work. They've got to find a way to pay guys more when they're younger. Players have to relent to that. The owners are going to have to relent to earlier free agency, something like that, because what we have right now, it's going to lead to more of those same off seasons where star players are still unsigned into February and even March because there just isn't enough of a market for them.
0: And that's not good for the game. That's embarrassing to your stars. It makes them less stars. It makes them lesser stars. And that's not good for anybody. So yeah, baseball's got to figure something out with that. All right, one more email. And we read this not to pat ourselves on the back, but to salute one of our listeners. Jessica wrote us. She writes, I got a kick out of the email you read the other day from the listener in the Netherlands, because I've had a feeling that I was actually your first daily download. See, I had a baby. A week before opening day. And since then, we've been listening to the podcast every morning during our 3 or 4 a.m. feedings. Your game recaps and analysis have been keeping this new mama entertained and up to date on the Nats through the past four months of sleepless nights. Thank you. Well, thank you, Jessica. That's pretty cool. She actually sent a photo along with the email. That's a great looking kid in a Nationals jersey. But, uh, Mark, you never know who's listening or under what circumstances that person might be listening.
1: I love this. You know, this is the community that this has built up and not necessarily what we intended to do with this, but I think we knew there is a community of fans out there and that the podcast can sort of bring them together. And I just love these kind of stories. The photo is great of the baby in their Nats gear late at night. I love the idea that hopefully our voices are putting them to sleep. That's the key there. We're putting the baby to sleep with our voices at three in the morning. That's fine. We'll serve whatever function you need us to serve, okay? We're here for you. But I love it. You're starting off another generation of fans. You're just sharing all this with each other and with us. And um, to me, it's really humbling to hear that our little podcast here has become like a regular part of people's routine, even at very odd hours of the day. And in very important moments, we both have kids. We've had those 3 a.m. feedings. We know what that's like. It can be a lonely time. So I'm glad that we can help make it a little more tolerable for them.
0: Well, I know when my wife is feeding our 11th month old daughter, she also listens to the Nats Chat podcast, but she hits skips ahead whenever I talk. So she only (laughs) listens to your portions uh, of the podcast. So, hey, I guess whatever works for you, right? You do uh, what you have to do. Well, Paolo Espino is pitching for the Nationals in game three against the Phillies Wednesday night at 7.05. If you don't have it already, get yourself the secret weapon t-shirt He's had a really good season. He's coming off a really good outing. You can get yourself the secret weapon T-shirt off the classic phrase that was uttered by Davey Martinez at a postgame press conference weeks ago by going to natchatpodcast.square.site That's natchatpodcast.square.site Also, email us, like we said, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. You can tweet us, too, at nats underscore chat. If you don't already subscribe to the podcast, please consider doing so. And if you haven't already, please take the time. It takes like 30 seconds to give the podcast a five-star rating and write just like a one-sentence review saying how much you like the podcast. Doing those things does help out a lot. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast.
3: What's today? What's Thursday? Really? Feels like Tuesday. <laughs> Tuesday has no feel. Monday has a feel. Friday has a feel. Sunday has a feel. I feel Tuesday and Wednesday. All right, shut up the both of you.